welcome to Third Man Walk. I'm joined today by Mark Goon, who's one of the best No Limit Hold'em cash game players in LA, plays the biggest games he can find. You might also know Mark from Live at the Bike. He commentated there before everything got shut down. And he's also a rapper and recently set up a YouTube channel where he talks about poker and music and other topics. So we'll be discussing that. Uh, towards the end of our chat, we talk about a hand I played and a bunch of poker terminology flies around pretty quickly. So just some brief clarification for those of you who are not hardcore poker players. When we talk about a linear range, what we're referring to is a collection of hands that are all really good, like aces, kings, queens, ace, king. So all hands that are good, no hands that are bad. When we talk about a polar range, that's going to include all the really good hands, aces, kings, ace, king, and so on, but also some not so good hands, like eight, six suited, seven, five suited, and not many hands in between, really good and not so good. And when we talk about a hand having two back doors, that means a hand that can make either flushes or straights if both the turn and river are favorable. So in the hand that we discuss, King 10 of Diamonds has two back doors on a board of 975 with one diamond because it can make a flush if both the turn and river are diamonds, or it can make a straight if, say, the turn is an eight and the river is a jack, or if the turn is a jack and the river is a queen, or something like that. I also mentioned that I did some work with a solver on this hand, and I want to add that the solver frequently thinks I should check my hand on the flop. I end up betting on the flop, which the solver thinks is also okay, but if I remember correctly, I should be checking something like 60% of the time with my hand on this flop. Okay, so let's get to it. My chat with Mark Goon. Mark, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I just want to say this is this is like this is honestly my favorite podcast, maybe besides the the Zach Lolo post. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You and I are friends, and we're we're actually sort of friends because of this podcast. We had played a lot of hours together, uh, and you said this offhanded thing about being a cockroach, and then uh, I turned that into the basis of the the first episode of the podcast. Asked for your permission to do that, and uh, yeah, here we are, a year and a half later. Yeah, glad I could uh, glad I could inspire something with the the cockroach comment. Yeah, so the cockroach thing comes up again in one of your new uh, videos on your YouTube channel. I'll add a, a link to Mark's YouTube in the show notes, and it's it's provocatively titled "Why Poker Is the Worst Job." You actually do a really good job laying out some of the positives to playing poker for the for a living. But yeah, but that that wouldn't get the clicks. Right. I mean, yeah, you got to go with the provocative title. So I thought maybe we could unpack some of the ideas that, that you laid out in that video, because I think they're they're pretty interesting and have a lot to do with the themes of third man walking. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. I've, uh, I've, I've played too much poker <laughs> in the last four or five years. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. So some of the downsides first, you talk about the idea of seeing people as bags of money and where you go with this is people with a lot of money, people who are there to lose money can get away with a lot of things at the casino. So as a pro, you kind of have to put up with a lot. Yeah, there's kind of different rules for different people, right? 
as the reg at the table, you are always expected to be on your best behavior, even if you're stuck 10K on the day or 20K on the month or however many big blinds, you know, are, are on a 500-hour downswing or whatever, you are just expected to be good for the game because you're the professional. And I think there's kind of like a sliding scale. However bad you are, that's what you can get away with. Like I've seen some ridiculous shit in L.A., over the last like four years just if a guy's dumping 200 300 bigs an hour like he can basically do whatever he wants yeah i mean there's that amazing blockhead tweet about going to a home game after the pandemic has started and they do temperature checks on the way in and the whale arrives at the home game and does not pass the te- the temperature check and everybody's just like yeah you just just sit down anyway <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't surprise me I think that the the idea of seeing people as bags of money has other interesting implications as well, which is that what you're really saying is that you're you're sort of objectifying the people at the table. You're seeing dollar signs instead of seeing these people. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think playing poker for a living kind of has a way of doing that to you, or at least, at least it did to me. Well, you have to um, do it. You, you, you must do it. Um, yeah. you're, you're costing yourself money if you think about it in any other way. You have bills to pay, and this game is is constantly bearing down on you. So, if the main way you think about your opponent is he's a jerk or he's a really nice guy or I, even like I think this guy has a gambling problem, you're costing yourself money. Exactly. When uh, when I'm at the table, I I hate everybody. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like it somehow brings out the worst in me, but I think. I think that's part of the reason why I've been as successful as I have playing poker. Yeah. To have that maybe like 5% of your personality, it can be really valuable. Yeah. And that's, that's a hundred percent of the time when I'm at the poker table, <laughs> yeah. even if I'm smiling or, or, or telling like nonsensical jokes, I'm, I'm my head the whole time is thinking like, I'm going to take all of this idiot's money. Right. And I, I don't think that way very naturally. But I have to do sort of a stylized version of that in my head to make this work. Yeah, and it's hard. It's it's hard to turn off. And like even if I'm even if I'm winning, it's like I just like the way I start treating people around me, and I'll just like catch myself that mindset kind of permeating pretty much every other aspect of my life if I'm putting in a lot of volume at poker. Yeah. Kind of the flip side of all this is that you do have to come off as nice and you do have to play this political game as your video also addresses. So you and I met playing, we had actually played together a few times before this, but the first time we ever talked was because of a, we were playing in a 5, 10, 20 game, but that's one of the smaller games you'll play and one of the bigger games I'll play. And so you're often searching for the biggest games you can find, but once you get beyond that $20 level, it's really hard to find those games and you really have to play a lot of political games to get in. Man, there's so much bullshit you have to put up with. And I, this 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 may be a statement that won't be very popular, but I think the pendulum has swung too far as far as what pros or regs are what is expected of them. And I understand like you don't have a right. Like like I don't have a right to play in a game. I don't have a right to to have a good game or be in a game where I'm going to beat people. But I think the expectations are so different from like a winner and a loser when 
a lot of the times, at least from what I've seen, like guys who are losing, there's not even like any form of respect or human decency a lot of the time. I mean, I'm sure you've put up with a lot of this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to times where like I stacked a guy who had pocket aces and he literally just threw an entire stack of hundreds at me. That shit's common, it, like, like at least in live poker in L.A. And all you hear is be good for the game, be good for the game, be good for the game. And like, I get it. Straddle. Don't talk strategy. Okay, but like there is a line somewhere, right, where like, okay, taking shit from this guy or listening to this guy spew racist or homophobic comments for the next hour, like it's just not worth the money, you know? There, there, there is a line somewhere, and I think, I think sometimes at least I get so caught up in like I need to be good for the game, I need to make this money that sometimes that line I think it's pushed too far, and I think that's part of what turns me into a person I don't like to be when I'm playing too much poker. One of the many things I like about just playing public games at casinos is that you always you don't want to be bad for the game but you always have the option of just putting in headphones and tuning all that other stuff out but i mean even in the scenarios you describe where you're stacking some guy and he's throwing chips at you 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 got into that game and you're going to get those chips but you've had trouble i don't know how much you want to talk about this but you've had trouble even getting into games in a lot of cases and have have had to to make some arrangements to even make that work yeah, I, I I really don't want to go into this one too much, just because it's delicate. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, when when we talk about this kind of balance, this is a big part of it that directly costs you money in some cases. We won't talk about your experience specifically, but there are lots of situations in bigger games where you have to sell some of your action or pay some sort of fee to even get into a game that other players don't have to pay. And... I mean, that's that's really tough and goes directly to your bottom line. Of course. And, um, you know, there is there is a line there. You have to decide ethically. First of all, if, you, if, if, if you're okay with it, like, I mean, the way it works is like, if I get in this bigger game, I'm theoretically going to make more money. But also you have, okay, so the people who are making money in these poker games, right? The people who are making money is the house, which is usually the casino or the host of the home game or whatever. Yeah, mostly the house. Mostly the house, and then the good regs who are beating the game. The thing is, once you start moving up above, say, 1020, or, you know, games that run regularly in public casinos, the, the games have to be organized. There has to be, like, a game organizer who is bringing in the weaker players, who is offering the weaker players something, either entertainment or promises of people they want to play with, or something has to be made to get these guys to play. And the game organizer, it's in their best interest to not have these guys get killed. Because if these guys get killed, the game is over, and the game organizer can no longer have a game. And whether that game organizer is organizing a home game and taking the rake, or just organizing it in a casino where it's like semi-private, and they're getting a kickback from the casino... It's in their best interest to make sure the game keeps running. So, yeah, they they don't want guys who are beating the game in the game. So as a winning player to get in the game, you're going to have to do something to offer value or else, you know, like you don't have a right just because 
you're a poker player just to play in any game you want to play. And if everybody else doesn't want to play with you, then you're not going to get in the game. I mean, yeah, and it, it goes back to, to what you said a second ago, which is the balance has tipped too far. And it's like, well, I mean, according to who? I mean, who who really has the power here? Exactly. That's kind of a personal opinion. And I, on one hand, I do say, like, I don't, I don't deserve to play in this game because I want to play in the game. But on the other hand, this stuff also pisses me off and so like it's a reason why i do have kind of one foot out the door of poker and i'm trying to do other stuff just because like i play poker because i enjoy strategy i enjoy the game i enjoy the the competition of it the politics and the 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 backdoor handshakes and the stuff but i don't enjoy that stuff but to play at higher and higher levels and keep playing in bigger games that stuff you kind of have to do unless you do that stuff you kind of stagnate and you're stuck playing 5 10 or 10 20 forever and i'm just one of those people who like i always want to see progress i always want like what's the next thing what's the next level and i've i feel like i i kind of hit a place in poker where to get to the next level it's it's a different skill set and if you want to call it that and it, it, it's a skill set that one, I'm not very good at, and two, I'm not very interested in developing. I mean, you know, maybe one way out is to play tournaments. These dynamics do not exist at all in tournaments. That, that I mean, yeah, that is a good point because, uh, but uh, the thing about tournaments is, is just how, how much volume can you get in playing, five k plus tournaments in a year. Yeah, especially with all the travel. Yeah, and then the travel you got to pay for hotel and flights and food wherever you are and i'm a homebody like i like being at home i just i don't want to travel eight months a year to get in the type of volume you need to make a living playing tournaments uh which would make a roughly equivalent income to playing mid-stakes or high-stakes cash right you talked about how competition is what drives you how do you square that with the variance aspect of poker it's hard Man, it's hard. Like honestly, that that's what I'm most thankful to poker for is is teaching me that there's variance in everything, man. There's 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 variance in everything you do in life. There's variance every time you get on the highway that someone doesn't swerve in front of you. I mean, like it's taught me not to get upset about shit I can't control. Right. If someone swerves and cuts me off on the highway, I can't control that that happened, but I can control how I react to it. And I think the biggest lesson poker's taught me is that you can control the process. You can control getting better. You can control working on your game. And you can control your emotions when negative things happen to you and when positive things happen to you. And if you do those things right, eventually the results will come. But you just you can't be too focused on the day to day results because in poker, like they're just they just don't matter. They just don't matter. And it's it's really, really hard because I think we're just like naturally wired to seek patterns in everything. And in poker it takes a very, very long time or it can take a very, very long time for those those patterns to emerge. Yeah. And I mean you you talk about you know, having these dynamics in your head with people like, This guy's bad, I'm gonna take all of his money. I mean the reality is that day you might not that day you might not that week you might not that month you might not and I'm, I, i've had guys who i've thought were big whales in the game who just got the best of me for like six months straight it just it just happens yeah 
sometimes I, I like to remove myself a little bit from the competitive aspect of it and think of it almost like a like a puzzle like a, or some sort of like Rube Goldberg contraption where you turn this lever and then this thing starts happening more. You start raising more flops, your opponent reacts in this way and it has these ramifications on the turn. Then what comes out of the of the machine at the end is mostly just interesting and you're not too fixated on did I beat this guy or not? So you're taking like a view that's like from a hot air balloon kind of looking down at the forest. Yeah. You know, and if I, yeah, if I, if I move this, this way, and I, I move this puzzle piece this way, will that be better for me in the long run, regardless of whether it's better for me today? Yeah, I think that, I think that's actually a, a, a much healthier way of looking at things than, than I do, to be honest. I think sometimes I let that competitive fire kind of get the best of me. You also talk about, on maybe the more positive side of, of what poker can do for you mentally, how it instills a certain mindset and keeps you disciplined and keeps you focused on the idea that the process is more important than the results. Yeah, I've, I've kind of been a lazy piece of shit like for most of my life, to be honest. And I've kind of given up on things easy. Like I love the basketball, right? I played freshman year, got cut from the team sophomore year and kind of gave up basketball. And that had been like my whole life at that point. It's just like, okay, didn't make it. I, I must not be good enough. I quit. Music. I did music for years and years and years. Actually started seeing some traction, but like in my head, I wasn't seeing the instant results that I thought I deserved from the work I'd put in. And I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm done with it. Mm. And I've always kind of had that problem where if I put in a certain amount of work and the results aren't there immediately, I'm like, okay, this isn't working. I'm done with it. And I think what poker's taught me is you just, as cliche as it sounds, you just have to trust the process because if the process is right, if if you're doing everything right, if you're putting in the work, sometimes the results are a little bit delayed. And I learned that from poker, especially when I went on like an eight or nine month downswing and I would send hands to friends, I would send hands to you to multiple people I think are very very good at poker and most of the time you know I wouldn't give the results of the hands and their decisions were the same decisions I was making so it kind of reassured me okay you're doing the right thing there's nothing else you can do there's nothing you can change you just kind of have to trust the process and going through that I think was kind of the best thing that ever happened to my work ethic and teaching me um, to trust the process. Yeah. And I think sort of extending this idea of the process being more important than the results, always having a view of the forest, not just the trees. This, this last year has been really interesting. Um, not that it has been an especially difficult year to make passive income, but the way good poker players have constantly been on the right side of a lot of things going on financially whether that be things they did in the stock market or bets they made on the election or cryptocurrency has been really interesting. I mean, no understanding, really understanding that the, that the process is more important than the results leads you down, I think, a really good path with regard to other areas in your life and just understanding how risk works. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. I find myself now as I, as I'm, you know, as I'm focusing more on music, especially 
during the last year with COVID, I hadn't put out music for four or five years. And I worked really, really hard for, you know, 10, 11 months, like every day in the studio, making songs, recording, writing, mixing, shooting videos. And then I put stuff out and it doesn't get maybe the hits or the views or the plays that my songs got four or five years ago. And normally it would crush me, but I think what poker's taught me is, okay, you know, you, you, you believe in this, you know you're doing something right, so just stick to it and the results will come eventually. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for poker for, for teaching me that lesson. I want to unpack another idea from your video, which is this idea of poker having a low ceiling, but a high floor. Yes. And you relate that to basketball. You want to explain what that's about? So let's start with a low floor, right? High, high low ceiling, you mean? Low, yeah, I'm sorry. Low, low ceiling. Let's start, let's start with the, uh, let's start with a high floor. Okay. Let's start with a high floor. So by high floor, what I mean is it's relatively easy to step into poker and start making money um, com- compared to other fields. Like I think... Is it... I, th- th- this is the part that I, I think I disagreed with the most. Or I, like, yes, it is much easier to get to that, like, you know, a reasonable income, like 50K or 60K a year, say with poker. It's It's way easier to make 60K a year through poker than it is by playing basketball, right? Yes. But is it easier to make 60K a year playing poker than it is to learn to become, uh, you know, to work in an office or to become a plumber or something like that? I don't know. And, you know, maybe maybe it's personal bias because I've never done any of that and I don't have experience doing any of that. And where I come from was working part-time jobs where I was making 12, 13, 14 bucks an hour to jumping into poker and within a month or two of learning the game and starting to play, you know, making 50, 60, 70 bucks an hour. For me, it was like, I don't have to pass out energy drinks out of the back of a truck in 12 degree weather anymore. <laughs> like my whole life has changed. Right. But then, but then why don't you recommend that anyone else do it? Because moving up, let me rephrase that. Because the, the ceiling, because of the ceiling, mm-hmm. because there's not much room to go up. And you, you, you mentioned the example of, you know, a LeBron James making $100 million off a year with his salary plus endorsements. Yeah. And the, the best poker players in the world, what, what do they make? Yeah, I don't know, a couple million? I'm not sure. Maybe a couple million if you're if the top five poker player in the world. The thing is, it's it's kind of like what I was what I was talking about a little bit earlier, whereas once you move above a certain level, the skill set shifts so dramatically and it's no longer about the competition or the strategy, and it's more so about the politics. Whereas you look at other jobs, there's always opportunities to move up, right? Like if you if you start um, in an office doing something, you can move up to a manager level. You can move up to, you know, like a senior executive. I don't, I don't know how offices work. I've never had an office job, but I'm just kind of guessing. Yeah. Me neither. Fortunately, (laughs) it just seems like to me that, uh, 
you can kind of keep moving up, right? You, 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 you get raises, you get promotions, you get a higher job title. Whereas in poker, um, the big games just, they're not really, and if the big games aren't there, how do you move up? How do you make more money? Right. Like if, if you're, if you're in a market where the biggest game is $2, $5 or $5, $10, it's like, where do you go from there? you're bumping your head against the ceiling within a year or two years and um, there's there's just nowhere else really to go. And while everybody else's salary, you know, your friend who may have started as accountant started making 60K a year, maybe three, four years from now, they're making 200K a year. And you as a poker player, your salary, unless you get better every year, your salary is going to go down. Right. That's, that is sort of a trip that you, you constantly have to be running on this hamster wheel. You, you're, you're running just to, just to say the same, say you're a guy who makes $50 an hour playing poker. If you don't put in the work over the course of the next year, next year, you're going to make $43 an hour. And the year after that, you're going to make $32 an hour. And so if you're not constantly getting better, not only do you not move up, you move down. And I, I can't think of, you know, a, a lot of other jobs like that, except like maybe professional sports so um that that's kind of why i made that analogy i see yeah i mean and i think that on the subject of it of there being uh, a high floor i would say yeah it has a high floor for a very small number of people you know the 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 floor actually for poker is not you make 50 or 60k a year it's you lose however many tens or hundreds of thousands right that's what most players do maybe maybe not tens or hundreds of thousands but they mostly lose you know, I'm, I'm going to give you this one. I, th- I think you convinced me. And I think maybe this one is just a blind spot and personal bias and thinking just because maybe I have. An right. Idea. I think you're, you're not giving yourself you're not giving yourself enough credit is where I'm kind of going with this. Yeah. I mean, either credit or just like this is something that came easily to me. Other things come a little bit harder to me. So maybe for other people uh, or a large majority of people, maybe this skill set is something that's not quite as easy to grasp. Just like for me, like if it's anything outside poker or music, like I'm just completely lost. Like I can't even (laughs) tie my shoes. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's just that. Okay. Well, so I, I have a hand we can talk through if you're, if you're interested in that. Cool. Okay. Uh, and yeah, we'll see if this makes it into the podcast. (laughs) Maybe I'll feel embarrassed at how badly I messed up this hand. But it's uh, let's let's talk about it. So I'm going to tell you who the villain, who who the razor in this hand is, okay. and I'm going to cut that out. Okay. 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 All right. So Mark knows who the villain in this, or not the villain in this hand, but the 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 guy who sort of sets off this chain of chain of events in this hand is. So he is an action guy, plays pretty well post flop, but is in way too many hands pre flop, usually raising depending on his mood. It's not unusual for him to play like 60% of hands. So it's the very first hand of a 5-10 game. First, my first hand of the day, everybody's first hand of the day. This guy raises to $50 in the hijack. The cutoff, who is a pro, he's a friend of mine, uh, and he three bets appropriately, calls. So the hijack raises to 50. Cutoff calls. The button calls. And I don't know the button. And it folds to me in the big blind with king ten of diamonds. Yeah, I, I I'm three betting a hundred percent here with a suited Broadway. Cool. And if we start to three bet hands like King Ten suited, we're we're probably already just going off the game tree. But I think against in this 
particular configuration, that seems like the best play. The game tree's already fucked up because you're not going to see like an open in like three flats ever. Two, yeah, two flats, yeah. Two flats, yeah. So, I, I mean, my my thoughts from the big blind here would be like, okay, so maybe because the the original villain, I know who that is, and he's pretty much not folding anything pre-flop. So I'm just going to go extremely linear, and this hand qualifies. I'm just I'm just going to go all my suited broadways, whereas maybe hands like five, six suited, six, seven suited, I might just call from the big blind because oh, that's interesting. I'm not going to get any folds. I, I think I can get some folds from this guy, actually. He, he knows me to be a fairly tight player. I have sort of a dynamic with him. Okay, maybe. I'm, I'm not getting any folds. Well, okay, so I, I've sort of wondered about this because I, I think that I would toss in some some like 9-7 suited, 8-6 suited, 7-5 suited type hands as well. So you're going to go polar? With a few hands. It's mostly going to be linear, and then the the polar ones will be hands like that. So what... what when you three bet here, first of all, what, what type of hands do you think he's opening and what type of hands do you think he's going to fold to your three bet? I mean, I think he's opening hands like queen five suited, jack six suited, six three suited. Um, he's kind of all over the place. And yeah, I think he'll fold a lot of those kinds of hands, a lot of the trashier offsuit hands like king nine off, hands like that. Okay. Yeah. Then I, I think a suit of Broadway is a slam dunk three bed, considering he's opening those with with the dead money in there. Okay. All right. So we make it three hundred five. He folds. Uh, my friend, the pro, folds, and the button, who I, again I don't know at all, he calls. Okay. All right. So there's about seven hundred in the pot. Seven ten. We have king ten of diamonds, and he, uh, my opponent, started the hand with about two thousand. Okay. So the flop comes nine seven five rainbow with a five of diamonds. Thoughts on c betting here? This is close. When I think of a guy who calls twice, you're not really supposed to be calling twice with anything. But like, usually when I see guys who call twice, they're going to be very heavy with hands that are small to mid pairs mm-hmm. and kind of like trash suited aces some suited broadways i think as well maybe some suited broadways yeah he looks like a recreational player yeah i I mean he didn't buy in with the max so i I would think so okay yeah so i mean i I would think like smaller suited aces like you know i guess ace deuce through ace nine suited and uh some suited broadways and then some pairs like deuces through nines I think this is close because you have two backdoors. Mm-hmm. And usually when I have two backdoors, I'm just going to start setting up a triple barrel now if I pick up equity on the turn. I think you can fold out some of the ASEX now. The pairs aren't going to fold, but again, if you, you there's a lot of cards which give you equity on the turn. Um, and it's going to be hard for him to hang on with small pairs. Yeah, I, I think I think I see bet here, just because you have the two back doors. I think your range wants to bet here a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it sort of hinges on how nuts can we go with like aces and kings here. And I think at this particular depth, we can go pretty nuts. Aces. I mean, you're just going with aces at this depth. Yeah, yeah. So if he has you know fifteen hundred more or something like that, maybe. 
things change a little bit. But yeah, we're we're pretty much willing to stack off pretty happily with with aces and kings. Uh, so I think we get to have some bluffs here. I think like Jack Ten suited would probably be the with a backdoor flush draw would, would probably be the best bluff. But this mm-hmm. one is also pretty good. I think sizing. It's nine seven five. Yeah, rainbow one diamond. I I think I think I would default to uh, to like the one third sizing here. I think if the board was like. Nine seven three nine seven deuce or like nine five deuce. I think I would have some larger sizings like half mm-hmm. pot or sixty percent. I think on this board kind of where he can have all the sets. Um, I think I just maybe default to a smaller like thirty percent sizing. Okay, yeah, we bet two fifty into seven ten, and he calls. Okay, okay, so twelve ten in the pot now. And the turn is the four of diamonds. So nine, seven, five, four with the five and four of diamonds. We have king, ten of diamonds. I don't like this card. No, huh? Why? Because I think now he's going to have. So if he has sixes, now he picked up equity. Yeah, seven six suited uh, feels like stuck s- with this. Seven six suited, he could have eights and picked up equity. Uh, he has a lot of like eights doesn't pick up equity. Oh, eight, it's nine seven five. Nine seven five four. You're right. Mostly just the hands that have a six in them. Yeah, he, I mean he can have just a lot of like pairs plus straight draws as like my natural kind of gut feel here. But also, also with that being said. I think he can still have a lot of like Broadways or the Ace X suited hands that kind of floated. And then like his Broadways that like beat yours, like maybe like a King Jack suited, King Queen suited. It's like you're losing to all those hands, you're losing to all the Ace X suited. And I think a lot of those hands might fold here. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think like what sizing. What sizing I would want to bet here with like aces or kings and what hands I'm trying to get to call. Yeah, I mean, you're thinking about it in terms of of balance, though, which might not be the way to go against this player. True. Uh, But he is an unknown, you said, and I, I do kind of I do kind of try to stick to a baseline until like I have some specific tendencies on a player. Although maybe the flatting twice preflop gives you quite a bit of info already. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. Well, we picked up equity. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sizing. Uh, what's the pot size? Uh, Twelve ten, and he has about fifteen hundred back. I know what you're thinking. Um, I know what you're thinking, and I'm not sure I'm on board. I think if you just did, you jam here. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I I think. I think if you jam here, you're putting yourself in a situation where, I mean, he's just going to snap fold a bunch of like ace highs and suited broadways that would fold to a smaller bet anyway. And you're just going to get snapped off by like the nutted hands, which he has quite a few of, or like the pairs plus straight draws. Yeah. I mean, I think it sort of hinges on what does he do with pocket tens, ace nine suited, you know, one of these pair plus draw type hands does does he fold those we don't know the answer we don't but, know we uh, don't yeah. know my guess would be yes at some frequency 
but I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, the question is, are, are, are there enough hands that are going to fold to the overbet jam here? Um, hmm. I, I think this really hinges, like you, you block 10, so probably doesn't have jacks. Um, maybe like a hand like uh, eight, nine suited. What does he do with that? Yeah, I can't think of many other hands that would fold to a jam that wouldn't fold to, say, a 40 to 50% size pot size bet here. Yeah, so you would bet, you know, 500, 550, something like that. I think I would do that, and I think I may give up River. Unless I, unless I hit a king or a 10, in which case I just jam for value. Or the flush, right? Or the flush, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I ran it through a solver, and that is that the solver prefers a bigger sizing than I used on the flop, actually. But uh, but your way where we bet a bit smaller on the turn is what the, the solver prefers. And But then if he shoves, we have to call off. Oh, that's surprising. Yeah. Well, because there's just not going to be that much back at that point. If you size up a little bit on the flop and then you bet the turn with a hand this yeah. strong, you're pretty much committed. So you're putting in over a third of your stack on the turn, effective stack on the turn. So you just right. got to call. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just like, I think the question is like, how many hands are folding for, you know, the, the overbet that aren't folding for the 40% bet? Right. And I, th- I think there's just very few. Yeah, you might be right. Uh, we did get snap called. What did he have? Well, the river was a six of diamonds, so we did not get to see what he had. Oh, it's <laughs> a pretty good river. <laughs> yeah, a pretty good river. You think you you think you were ahead before the river? You think Kinkai was good? <laughs> I, I doubt it, but maybe. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe he had queen jack of diamonds, and, yeah. and we just owned him the whole way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's interesting. I think. Um, I don't know what I would do in game, but like my, my thoughts here obviously are uh, I do like the smaller bet on the turn. Yeah, you're probably right. And I, I think also, and maybe this is like some some fish think on my part, doing this on the first hand of a table is maybe not, against the total unknown, is just maybe generally not the way to go. Yeah, let him let him see you play for an hour and like... He's like, oh, this this guy's this guy's tight. He folds a lot of hands, so like, I'm just gonna fold to him. That's that's what guys think of like like recreational players. That's what they think of uh, of regs. Right. If you don't play a lot of hands, you don't bluff. Right. Right. Well, so. a lot of people who don't play a lot of hands don't bluff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that is true. A lot of people just don't bluff. Well, that's also true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, thanks for joining me, Mark. And part of the reason, I guess, that you are releasing some videos about poker and about other topics is because you have a bunch of new music coming out for sure i do so in addition to being a professional poker player you're also a rapper yes sir yeah i've put out two songs so far i'm depressed and can't pull the trigger uh shot music videos for each um have two more music videos coming out in march and uh, i'm just gonna keep keep putting stuff out see how it goes nice maybe you can send me a wave file and i'll uh i'll use that as the the cap to this segment cool yeah that'd be great yeah uh and i'll put some links in the show notes as well so you can check out mark's videos some of which are about poker and his new music got him on the press with the bread i wake up every day fix a smile on my face i'm a mess i 
I've been trying to do my best You got it, I'm on the press Can't get on my way when you ask am I okay I say yes, I wouldn't tell you any less You got it, I'm on the press Okay, I'm depressed, shit to tell the truth it's February 20th, and I just got back from the casino. I've been playing outdoor poker in Los Angeles for the past couple weeks, and I have to say, I really like it. I don't want to spend time here promoting casinos, but I have to say, a lot of these places have done an amazing job with their outdoor setups. The bikes is beautiful. Gardens, also really nice. Even Commerce is a really nice place to play poker. So I'm really enjoying uh, playing outdoors in these uh, spacious gaming setups in the Southern California weather. They're all in tents and have some heating or air conditioning piped in. So the temperature is always pretty reasonable. And it's great. I mean, there are some some problems. Uh, there's plexiglass dividers between the seats and the four and the five seats on the poker tables in most of these places is really, really tight to the point of feeling sort of claustrophobic. So you sort of have to wait until you can change into one of the outer seats, which are much nicer. And then none of these places are offering free food or comps right now, which as someone who plays a lot of hours of live poker is important to me. And there's some logistical issues like at gardens you have to walk a really long way to the cage at the bike you have to walk a really long way to the parking lot but it's really nice and honestly once this is all over i wouldn't mind if outdoor poker continued in some capacity in la because we have the weather for it so i've been having a great time um, i've mostly been playing 510 with a three thousand dollar cap and that's what i was playing today uh, I want to tell you, first of all, about the biggest pot I won today. There's a lot of limping in this game, and a player limped from, I think, the hijack seat. I was on the button with ace-eight of clubs and limped also, which I think in this lineup is probably slightly more profitable than raising. So I just limped. The big blind, who... I feel like I have a pretty good handle on her game. Uh, raised to $65. So limp of 10, call, and then big blind raises to $65. The limper, who was a recreational player, who was quite deep, called. So I felt obligated to call as well. So ace to clubs, there's a little bit less than $200 in the pot. Heading to the flop, and it's king, eight, six, rainbow with no clubs. So I flop second pair, top kicker, and the big blind checks and the first limper checks. So I've seen the big blind like fire into a six-way pot with king 10 on a board of king 7-5 or something like that when she wasn't even the preflop raiser. So I think that when she checks, she's not going to have very many good hands here. I'm not even sure she should because of the presence of the recreational player in the hijack. So I think that when it checks to me, it's very likely that my hand is good right now. Ace-8 on king-8-6. But more to the point, I'm not sure how much it matters if it's good or not. I think that whether or not it's good, this looks like a very winnable pot if I'm willing to uh, put in the work. 
So I bet uh, 105, which is, I think, bigger than is optimal for my hand. But I think part of what I'm doing here is not only attempting to get value and protection for the hand I do have, but also setting up a potential bluff uh, later on in the hand in order to get the big blind to fold, say, queens through nines, if she happens to have that. So she calls, the other player folds, and now there's about $400 in the pot, and the turn is a complete blank, I think an offsuit deuce. She checks again, and again, I don't think it, I think my hand is probably good, but I also don't think it matters much. I think she is highly unlikely to be strong here. She should perceive me as being um, pretty tight and having something like pocket sixes, and I can just win this pot with a pretty sizable bet. So I bet $450, a little bit more than the pot, and she folds. And yeah, that was the biggest pot I won today. And the other ones were all pretty frustrating. Had a number of situations in which I got a lot of money in ahead and it did not end up working out. In the first one of these, there was one limp. I was in the low jack with pocket queens and raised to $50. And the player next to act had a short stack of about 260 and went all in, it folded back around to me. Obviously I called and she showed pocket sixes and flopped a six. So I lost that 80-20. Wasn't feeling too bad about it at this point though. It was a really good game. And to give you a sense of what this game was, was like, there was a, a recreational player to my immediate right. He was moving around a lot, adjusting himself in his seat. Seemed like a really nice guy, but he was just giving this impression of, of having a lot of nervous energy and he was giving a lot of action. He was quite unpredictable, but mostly in ways that were negative EV for himself. For example, there was one pot that I was not in, in which under the gun limped, this player limped the cutoff, the small blind completed, and the big blind checked. So there was about $35 in the pot. And the flop came king eight five with the king and eight of diamonds. The blinds checked under the gun, bet 25. This player in the cutoff, the agitated recreational player, raised to 100. The small blind folded. The big blind cold called the 100. And the under the gun player also called. So now there was about $335 in the pot. And the turn was a jack of diamonds. So now the board is king, eight, five, jack with three diamonds. It checked to... Uh, the agitated recreational player again, and he bet 300, almost the full size of the pot. The other two players folded, and he showed pocket queens. So it's it's very difficult to tell what this guy is going to be up to in any given hand. So in the hand I played against him, he limped from the cutoff. I raised to $50 on the button with pocket aces, and this gentleman called. So there was about $110 in the pot, and the flop came 7-4 deuce rainbow. Again, I have pocket aces on 7-4 deuce. And this guy led for 200 into 110. No idea what this bet means. I think certain types of recreational players would have really strong hands here, like sets. Um, I'm not sure this guy is one of them, and I'm certainly not going to give up on pocket aces, even to a bet this size. So I make the call. So now there's about 510 in the pot. And the turn is the nine of diamonds creating a backdoor diamond draw. So now the board is seven, four, deuce, nine. 
with two diamonds and I have aces and I do have the ace of diamonds. This time he bets 400, about 80% of the pot. And I call again. So now there's 1310 in the pot. The river is an offsuit five and he bets 600. So I think this is a card that can match well with whatever he's representing here. I think there are a lot of weird two pairs out there now, seven, five, five, four. There are also some strange straights, which would really make no sense for him to have, but which he could maybe have maybe ace three or eight, six, both had gut shots on the flop. If he were to have checked this river, I would be pretty happy with my situation and think I was going to win the hand at showdown a decent amount. But when he bets, I'm not sure that's the case. And I don't think if he had a hand like king seven that just starts going crazy on the flop and on the turn, that that hand would be firing again here on the river. I could be wrong. I really don't know what this guy is up to. Um, but I have a bad feeling about it. And I sort of pick my aces off the table so he can see them and I toss them into the muck. And he shows me eight six of clubs. So he flopped a gut shot, turned open-ended, and rivered the nuts. I did manage to get away, but still a pretty frustrating spot. So I'm already pretty stuck. Our agitated recreational friend leaves and is replaced by a new player. And um, this is a fairly accomplished tournament player who I've played a little bit with over the past week. And I have sort of a funny dynamic with him where he has sat to my direct right a couple of times now. I've three bet him many, many times, and he has beaten me in all of the three bet pots. He's just defended to all of my three bets and has ended up beating me. And it's not like I've been especially out of line in the hands I'm picking to three bet. There's no reason for me to be because, because he's not folding really apparently and because his raises aren't totally out of line either. So I'm mostly three betting with pretty good hands and it's just not working out. I'm not getting the runouts I need and he keeps beating me, you know, it happens. So there's a spot where there's a limp. This guy raises to 50 in the hijack and I'm next to act with pocket aces. And I'm like, yes, this is a great spot. Not only because I have pocket aces facing a raise, but because of this dynamic with this particular player. So I raised to 175 folds back around to him, and he puts in a huge four bet to 725. Great spot. He has about $900 back. I think if he had, say, 3,000 back, that I would be calling here a lot. Um, but when he has 900 back, I think he's almost never folding when I shove. And I think if he were to fold a hand like, I don't know, Jack's, it would almost be a mistake because he's giving himself pretty good odds to just call off his stack and, and hope he flops a set. So I shove, he calls, and we've got something like a $3,300 pot developing. The board runs out, jack, five, three, king, king, and he turns over pocket kings for quads. So it was a rough day. I lost 4,000 bucks. You don't love to see it. But I have to say, I've done a much better job than I've done in the past of keeping things in perspective and not compounding run bad with also playing bad. 
I think back to when I first moved to LA in 2018. It took me about a year actually to get my bearings. I made money in that first year. It was fine, but not so much money that I was really gung-ho about this being what I want to do for the foreseeable future as opposed to, you know, getting a job. And right around the time I made the first season of Third Man Walking, that's about when things started to turn for me. But you can still hear a lot of genuine frustration in that first season with how things were going. And I don't feel so much of that anymore. You know, when I look back to 2018, I've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before, but what was going on was I had moved to Los Angeles from the Midwest and was continuing to play poker in a completely new player pool. So I don't know anyone. It's tougher because LA has a much more firmly established culture of poker than the Midwest does. And players in LA are much more aggressive and unpredictable. And because it's such a huge pool, you're just constantly running into people who you don't know or you don't know very well and facing big bets against them and not really knowing what to do because you don't have reads. So it just adds up to a lot of variance. On top of that, I ran pretty bad for quite a while, but I made it worse. And one of the ways I made it worse was... I had sort of a misapprehension about the way LA poker works, which is that these recreational players can be really crazy on earlier streets. They'll three bet you more, you know, they'll raise you on the flop more often. But the thing is, for the most part, once that big bet goes in on the river, they have it usually, not always, but usually. And in that respect, LA poker is much like poker anywhere else in the country where when you face the big bet from a recreational player on the river, you kind of just loll mentally and fold a lot because they're just not bluffing as often as maybe they should. With LA, it's, it's exactly the same. And it took me a while to figure that out. So when I was running bad and, you know, say I would have a set and there'd be a second club on the turn and then a third club on the river and I'd face that big bet, I'd be like, this guy can't have a flush. I've, I've had four sets go down in flames this month and what, I'm just supposed to fold um, just because this guy is betting $1,000? And so I would call and I would just be shown the flush again and again and again. And part of that, again, is not understanding the way LA poker works, but also part of it was tilt, you know, I would feel entitled to win with my set because I'd lost with so many sets and it's unfair. And so I would make calls that maybe I shouldn't have made. So I've started adjusting better. I've folded to river aggression more frequently. And, you know, this, this, you know, fold the river heuristic is only so useful. It doesn't apply to every player. It doesn't apply to nearly the same degree to good players. And it certainly doesn't apply to the players who might be listening to this podcast. I know who you are. And when you try to bluff me on the river, I will call you. Uh, But it works pretty well, especially against recreational players. And I figured that out and adjusted. and, And, you know, when I'm having a rough day, I don't make it worse by making calls that I shouldn't make, for example. Like in that aces hand against the, uh, the agitated gentleman. 
so it used to be that when I would come home after a rough day, I would be thinking, ah, I, you know, I don't know if I played this correctly against this player. I don't know if I'm, you know, good enough to do this professionally. And that's stress and it makes things really hard. And now I feel more serene and more confident. And when I have a day like today, especially when I look over the big spots and think, there's really not much I could do to make this better, then I feel fine with it. And uh, I lost $4,000. I mean, that seems weird, makes me feel like some sort of psychopath. Um, But I think as a professional gambler, it's good that I've gotten more used to the swings. And I feel better equipped than I used to to keep doing this, to keep gambling for large amounts of money. So I didn't win today. That's fine. I'll focus on continuing to play well. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.